0: Understand I could've had class. I could have been a contender. I could've been somebody. Somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the (sighs)
1: team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. The standard that's been set so far in our race to become Second Captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2021, has been nothing short of frightening. From a 77-year-old Richard Ford pounding out the miles on the plains and coolies of Montana to a teenage Malcolm Gladwell absolutely smoking a future Canadian Olympian on the track in Ontario, this has been a series like no other. And through the gauntlet today steps the wonderful poet and author Darren DeGrieve. Welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Oh, my beloved Kieran Murphy here. Hey, Murph. Hey, On. How's it going? going really well. Dearnie Grief uh, has written six collections of poetry for which she's been awarded a Seamus Heaney Fellowship and the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. And her first foray into prose went pretty well, I think you would say. A Ghost in the Throat won the Post Irish Book of the Year for 2020, was named a Best Book of the Year by The Guardian, The Observer, The Irish Times, The New Statesman and an Editor's Choice by The New York Times. Now that book is an attempt to piece together the life of a woman called Eileen Dove-Nee Connell who lived in Cork in the 1700s and wrote a poem about the murder of her husband. Dieran became so obsessed with telling this woman's story that she'd be awake all, all hours of the night thinking about it. She'd spend her days stuck in her car on the rooftop of a multi-story car park in Ballancolic writing it up. Now that's also the level of dedication required to become our greatest non-sports person sports person. So <laughs> we could have quite a competitor on our hands here. And she has a backstory originally from Clare. She was a teenager during the glory years of Clare Hurling and in 1995 she was actually in Croke Park to cheer County on to their first All Ireland in eighty odd years, having won a pair of tickets in a raffle. <laughs> this is a true story. In Supermax, I mean that, that wow. is the dreamer. That's just well, that really true. is.
2: I mean the, the bona fide are They don't, literally don't get any better than that all uh, That is some r- hardcore GA activity Oof. there. Yeah.
1: What's the latest with the leaderboard, please? It could have been a contender. I could, could have been somebody. <laughs>
2: Malcolm Gladwell is top of the tree after last week's 88-point haul. He celebrated by hammering once again his fellow journalist Chris Chavez, 30 years his junior, who he was telling us about last week. Uh, during the week this week, the man is nothing short of a machine. Richard Ford, as you mentioned, is next on 85 points. Bonnie Greer, bottom of the pile on 71 points. Jernia Grifa has much to ponder as
1: she accepts this, possibly the stiffest sporting challenge of her young life. So Texas so and 5151. Tweet at Second Captains. Email editor at secondcaptains.com. Dear any grief at coming right up? But first, here's some villagers. And
0: so simpatico you are. You are. You are. Little did I know you were here all the time in the garden lie in the depths of my mind <laughs>
1: O'Brien and Villagers celebrated the 10 year anniversary of becoming a jackal last year and I think they're getting better if that's possible that's their latest tune, so simpatico absolutely love that one. Oh the Uh, last gig I was
2: at on, Villagers in Vicar Street in December of
1: 2019 we'll be back soon, I presume (laughs) we'll (laughs) be back soon our guest today on Second Gap on Saturday is a poet and author who has won the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature for her poetry, the Irish Book of the Year Award for her prose, but none of that comes close to the biggest prize of her life when she walked into Supermax in Ennis in the summer <laughs> of 1995 and along with her snack box meal with Coke, she took home a pair of tickets to the All-Ireland Hurling Final. Dear Andy Griefer, thanks for chatting to us.
3: That was probably the highlight of my life. <laughs> Don't <And> <laughs> tell my children I said that. <laughs>
1: oh, well, I mean, this is like not any year, but we're talking about 1995, the biggest event probably in the history of the county of Clare. How did you win these golden tickets?
3: Oh, my God, I was so lucky. I actually can't even believe it now, looking back on it. And I suppose that year, the excitement in Clare was just building and building and building to fever pitch. And by the time we were approaching the All-Ireland, tickets were I know they're always like gold dust, but it was unbelievable. Like we'd all kind of given up any hope of getting a ticket to the All-Ireland And I went into Supermax on O'Connell Street at the grand old age of 14 with a big gang (laughs) of my my sisters, my cousins, Martha and Joseph. And uh, there was controversy in the family afterwards because the deal was you were to buy your meal and a drink of Coke and then they'd put your receipt into the Mm hat to draw names from. I actually got a drink of milk instead of coke. <laughs> my cousin Joseph was behind me and he still maintains that it would have been his because he got coke. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was brilliant. And the, like we, none of us thought that we would win the tickets. But the next day, um, my nana Mae was at home listening to Claire Femme. They called out my name and sure she was right away on the phone and I'd say you would have heard my roars all over the parish. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't believe it. And I brought my dad with me. So it was a huge moment for us in our own relationship as well. Like the fact that I got to bring him to the All-Ireland in 1995 of all years and like with VIP tickets, we just we didn't know ourselves, you know.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, this is such a a weird inversion of kind of one of the real rites of passage of Irish life. You know, that your dad takes you uh by the hand and brings you to an Laura and final at, at a formative age in your life you actually did that for your dad but i am interested to know what vip passes from supermax uh meant in 1995 <laughs> like what, what, what how vip are we talking here with red carpet oh, champagne on arrival that sort of thing uh,
3: do you know i think i think it was that there was a voucher each for a free pint <laughs> and uh, my dad obviously took both of the vouchers and greatly enjoyed himself. I think that was the total. But we were up in like VIP boxes and sure as the game was getting more and more exciting, we were kind of wishing we were down amongst our people, you know, but our, we're, I'm not complaining. I was so thrilled to be there. Like my generation, say I turned 40 this year, that, those of us that were just coming into our teenage years that year in 1995, and I know it changed me as a person, you know, like it was almost like I grew another vertebrae. I was able to stand straighter in myself, you know, I'm from Clare, like the pride of that. And I never lost it since. I know people kind of come and go that year in particular. I felt the whole country was rooting for us. You know, we can be a bit hit or miss that way since. But Genie Mac, there was something in that year that I, I think loads of us internalized at a really deep level. That sense of you know, Jerry Nan at halftime, we are going to do this. That mm-hmm. sense of determination, grit, and, you know, we're going to give this socks. And it's not necessarily about, oh, it's like we're absolutely going to win no matter what. It's that sense of we're going to go in and we're going to give this our all. And there's something in that that really drives me on still. And isn't it funny the way with sports... That can seep into different parts of your life, that sense of having confidence in yourself, that sense of I'm really going to try this. Like, and and like, I know a lot of people in Clare, like me, are, are like they have Sherlock Nan's echo in their ear the whole time and that like kind of gritted jaw, you know, that sense of like, we're going to do this. I'm going to do this, even when things are against you, that you have that sense from sports, even as a spectator, that it just gets into the fibre of your being, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I just love this image of you, you know, crouched over a poem that you're struggling to finish or a book. And you're just (laughs) Sherlock Nan's voice is (laughs) at the (laughs) Irish Book of the Year Awards last year. Just like
2: absolutely dominating your opponents. I I love that. Yeah, it's funny to think of it that way, you
3: know. And when my husband was, my husband was trying to explain to our kids about the Irish Book Awards and about this, you know, This this book your mother is written and it's it's in the irish book awards and then when it was kind of getting beyond its heat and then it was kind of going to be on the telly and and he started explaining to them like your mom's in the all ireland (laughs) 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 and so that was the frame of reference that we had for it you know and um yeah it was just it was great you know
1: you were a teenager at the time were you already an aspiring poet at that stage you said you were like 14 was poetry in your bones at that point
3: I don't think it was you know funny enough I like just the same as with anyone else at school there were certain poems that I kind of took a shine to from our poetry textbook soundings like I love the planter's daughter now but just as a reader you know and um, I was never really writing or anything like that I was quite slow to come to writing it was only when I was in my kind of late 20s and do you know, I was, I was working as a primary school teacher, I was very, very happy in my work and in my life, I was very settled and poetry kind of came out of the blue for me. Uh, the idea of being a writer came out of the blue for me and kind of grabbed a hold of me and just swerved me away to a different kind of life. And, and that's where I am since, but not at that age, no.
1: It's interesting that it happened later then. Was there a particular sort of light bulb moment for you?
3: Yeah, and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a strange kind of a story. Um, I was very close to my grandfather, Mihal, and he just had a lovely way with all of the grandchildren, you know, those kind of older men in your life that would really kind of take you under their wing and, and just have great time for you. And um, when he was dying, we were all called up to Dublin to be near him. And we got the call to go into the hospital in the middle of the night. And I was there on my own because my husband was working and I had the I had my eldest baby with me and um, I, cu- I couldn't go into the hospital. It wasn't felt like it would be appropriate to have a baby there, which you would fully understand, you know. um. But what that meant was that I was um in my aunt's house on my own trying to rock the baby to sleep and sure, I was really upset and just really kind of, I suppose, in, in turmoil, you know, and just feeling that kind of profound sense of sorrow and almost that sense of a tear that you feel in yourself when someone is dying and you can't be with them, which very unfortunately is something that so many people have been through this year with the pandemic and last year, that sense of, you know, being away when all you want to be is to be next to someone you love as they're passing away. But um, so I was there trying to get the baby to sleep and, these lines just started to repeat in my head over and over again like to the extent where I thought initially maybe it was a poem I'd heard in school at some stage and that was kind of coming back to me but the more it looped round and round it's kind of started to realise this is this is a poem and once the baby fell asleep I just hopped up out of the bed and and wrote it down and it kind of grew before my eyes. I know how strange this sounds, by the way, but like, <laughs> it, it is it is what it is, you know, and just just started to scribble it down. And and I kind of I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say that. I feel like that was a gift, you know, that every day since then that I have picked up pen and paper and 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 I have felt that sense of closeness like I've often questioned it you know and kind of I sometimes feel quite embarrassed when people ask me how it came to writing because I know how it must sound and yet at the same time there's that sense of standing strong and standing over who you are even if it does sound a bit strange you know so yeah no I suppose it's just when I had that experience and started to to write after my grandfather died and I started to read at a mighty clip. I read uh, that was how I taught myself to write poetry, really. That was how the skill developed alongside the urge. The urge was what came when my grandfather died. The skill was what developed over hours and hours and hours. Like I know you were speaking to Malcolm Gladwell and we shouldn't be referencing really the ten thousand hours because I'm not sure it applies Mm. entirely with this. But I think that all the hours of reading poetry then that was an education. Who did and you read? Sorry to
2: interrupt. Who did you who did you read? No, your
3: grand. Oh, your grant. Oh, I do, you know, I read everything. I used to go into the library and I would have the kids with me and they would be getting their kids books and I used to just take armfuls of poetry books off the shelves. And the more that I did that, the more I realized that poetry wasn't what I thought.
1: What would you say, Darren, to people mm. who say they just don't get it? They, they think poetry is inaccessible, impenetrable, elitist. It it leaves them cold. People like me, for example, yeah. who I also read soundings, and it just didn't really do it for me. I studied English in college, and I loved the the novels and the plays and all that. I just I just never quite got poetry. So um, yeah. win me over here, convince me. <laughs> well, I I, I can't me. do that <laughs> after two thousand years of Western civilization <laughs> comes down
2: to
3: this. Um, I can't do that, but what I can do is tell you my experience and I have such sympathy for that um opinion because that was me. For so much of my life, that was me. I liked the odd poem that I had studied at school, but I didn't have any time for it either, you know, and I started to realize that poetry for me is like listening to a song. I love lyrics, you know, I love lyrics. I love listening to a song here the here in the lyrics. Now, come back, Paddy Riley to Valley James stuff or something like that. You know, I just love how it transports you lyrics and it puts you in the voice of someone and their desires and their wants or their sorrows. And that for me is what poetry has become you know it's very close to song for me to listening to lyrics like that and the more I realized it like that that I could just enjoy it that I didn't have to figure out what I assumed I had to figure out before that which was this mystery correct answer that a teacher would demand for you like I would be like oh god poetry you know there's going to be a lot of questions about name the metaphors and the similes what did the poet want to communicate but for as an adult coming to poetry i realized that you can just enjoy it for what it is and i kind of wish i'd realized that sooner because it's brought me great joy since you know and i really enjoyed it it gives a real glimpse into someone else's imagination and someone else's world and it's really enriched my life so yeah i love it yeah, Plus no, it's a quick read as well. dear, I'll sell you on that. It's quick, poems are short. <laughs> also,
1: I, I'm I'm am a painfully slow reader, so really, I should have uh, would have got through the degree a lot quicker if I if I'd probably focused more on the, the <laughs> poets. But it, it is a good point you make there that the, the way, not so not even so much the way it's taught, but even I sometimes think a lot of poets actually might like the idea of their poetry being inaccessible, that you have to work to understand it. And, you know, only you have to be super smart, think in a certain way to get what, what they're feeling. Maybe that's a sweeping generalization. But is that a is that a, an attitude that you encounter?
3: Yeah, that's definitely a sweeping generalization. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, for poets, there's nothing that any poet I know of loves more than standing in front of a group of people and speaking a poem to them. That's what we're in it for, you know. And I know for me, I spent so many years as a primary school teacher I used to love reading stories to kids, loved it, loved how no matter how much a kid wanted to jump up and bounce off the walls, if you opened a storybook, they were down and listening and there's just this magic in their eyes. And we very rarely get that as adults. We very rarely get the opportunity to sit down and listen to someone else read to you. And that's what I love about poetry reading. It doesn't feel like a closed church to me at all. It feels like an opportunity to sit down and have someone read to you. And I love that. I love that so much. And and I think that as poets, that's what we love is to sit and speak poems to people who want to listen, you know, um, and it feels very open to me. Like I know at home in Claire now, we'd still have the sense of a recitation, you know, mm. that, that someone might if everyone is gathered and there's a few tunes and that kind of thing, that someone will stand up and and speak a poem. And there's no sense in my experience, in those moments of that feeling like a closed or an oblique or opaque kind of an art. it's a spoken, living thing that carries people somewhere else and I find it really beautiful.
2: Uh, I think for uh, those of us who don't read as much poetry maybe as we'd like there are still times in our life when we turn to it you know in important moments and oftentimes that's a a funeral or a wedding or a big birthday party or something something like that but also actually in lockdown I found um, you know like my mother was sending me poems you uh, like for the first couple of weeks of lockdown and like obviously we would never have sent poems to each maybe not obviously but uh we would never have sent poems to each other but then you know for the first couple of months of lockdown or say on instagram and in twitter there were actually more and more just like little poems just to take yourself out of whatever like a heightened emotional state you were in at that moment mm. poetry kind of worked for a lot of people i thought mm. during lockdown um i'd just be kind of interested to hear you know kind of why you thought that might be is it just that idea that sometimes when you want your emotion to be kind of taken uh, to a higher plane poetry works at that level in a way that maybe nothing else does
3: yeah, that's a really interesting question. I love the sound of your mom. I love the idea of these, like <laughs> this woman, sending out guerrilla poems into the world by text message. That's fantastic.
1: She's a long-time librarian as well. We ah, yeah, even yeah. better. Yeah, like the, li- <laughs> you the can angels. Tell her I'm a
3: big fan. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, don't worry, I will. <laughs>
3: um, yeah, I, I, I think that. When we can see beyond the sense of poetry, feeling like a closed and locked door, when we can let ourselves get beyond that, and as I say, I've had that experience myself very much so, we can see what poetry has to offer us. And sometimes it's as simple as that, like you know, you're you're scrolling, scrolling through Instagram or whatever, and there's something there that catches your eye. What I find interesting about poetry is the way it occurs on the page, the way it's set out on the page. It choreographs your breath. And I always love when people take a moment to say a poem, like not just to read it silently, but to say it even to yourself, because it changes the way you breathe. It goes into your body and you hear it spoken on your own voice. It fills up a room and it's a living thing in that moment it's with you you're not on your own the poem is with you it's bubbling up from your own body and it's with you and I love that the the idea of of the poems even those we see on social media or anything like that of taking a moment to speak a poem out loud I mean it can be a real mood changer in a bad way as well as a good way sometimes (laughs) maybe but like it's there's something really profound about that of just taking a poem as I don't know, as a moment for enjoyment, just pleasure of not feeling like this. Oh, God, here we go, poetry, blah, blah, But just like taking it as an opportunity for pleasure or just a moment to step back from things, as you say, when. When things feel overwhelming, Um, I don't fully understand still why poetry has that effect on us physically, but I know it does because I felt it myself. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. So many of us have our own little secret joys in our lives, don't we? Like things that we go to, like certain kinds of music or some things that we're passionate about, and it's just lovely to have an opportunity to speak with you today about this because it really is something that has brought me great joy and does in an ongoing way, you know.
1: Yeah, Okay, I'm convinced, Darren. Po- poetry, <laughs> actually pretty good. That's that's what I'm taking away from the conversation. You've... Uh,
2: 17 years of our educational system couldn't do it, but uh, no. 20 minutes with
1: uh, Dirty oh. reef. Uh, I think I maybe needed more passionate teachers, but that's, 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 Leon. You know, that's that's taking away my own personal responsibility in this. I do want to talk to you now, though, about Ghosts in the Throat, which is the multi-award winning book of yours that I mentioned earlier on. It won loads of international awards. Many of our listeners will be familiar with it. At the centre of that book, again, it's this connection with those who have gone before, in this case, the life of Eileen Dovney Connell, a writer of mm. the 18th century poem Queen Art Elira. Now what's really striking is about this it's, it's the amount of research, the commitment you put into this thing, your obsession really with understanding Eileen Moore. You write how you skip meals and showers and sleep think like you lost 10 pounds you say but what's also fascinating is where exactly you wrote this book, because you could have gone plenty of places in Cork, I would have thought that would perhaps look similar to how it looked in the 1700s. But you ended up conjuring this world of 18th century Ireland (laughs) while sitting in the top floor of a (laughs) multi-storey car park. Can you tell us how and what exactly about a multi-storey car park spoke to you of, of 18th century Ireland?
3: Oh, gosh. I am just increasingly aware of how bonkers I must sound to your <laughs> listeners. <laughs>
2: Whatever gets the job done, Dirt, You know, we were like, absolutely.
3: Yeah, oh Lord, look at again. It it is what it is, I suppose. And um, yeah, I, I was I was stuck for time. Is the easy answer to that? You know, I've, I like a lot of people. I have a very busy life. I have four small children, and the time that. I was able to eke out in order to write a book was while my youngest child was at play school. So I had three hours then and I couldn't bring myself to lose any time from those, but felt very short, mm. three hours to focus on writing this book. um. So with Sherlock Nan's voicemail, we are mm. going to do it <laughs> off. I used to go every morning after I dropped her off and up to the roof of the multi-story car park, which was very close to where she was in play school, uh, mostly for convenience. But actually, when I found myself in the routine and I suppose in that daily pattern and practice of going to the same place every day, of having the same, of being there at the same time every day and looking at the same view every day and opening the laptop and that sense of striving physically to a certain extent but more mentally you know trying to search and trying to write and trying to communicate this story to the reader with the immediacy with which i had felt it myself in my own life i could really feel that it was actually the perfect place to write a book and i hadn't realized it really when i embarked on that but the more I returned to that place, the more I could see. yeah, it was perfect because I was elevated over over the, the town. It's not a big town, but I was elevated over the town and I was able to angle my car so that it was pointing towards the hills beyond which was McCroom and Raleigh House where Eileen Dove had lived after she married Lira. So I had the sense that I was writing up in the sky kind mm. of, but that I was pointed towards this sense of distance, not just physical distance between me and and Raleigh where she would have been and Kilcrave and closer where she would have that was the place where they ended up burying Arthur Lear in the end. But the fact that I was writing across distance temporally, across time, as well as across this physical distance, became really important to me. And it and yeah, it really ended up being a great place to write a book. And it was funny at the end I was reluctant or scared maybe even to finish writing the book because I was afraid of when I finished it that Eileen Dove would leave me, you know. And I came closer and closer to the end of the book and one day I went up there on the multi story to put in my, my uh my hours and I got out at one stage because there's a supermarket there below and I used to go down to spend a few bob and a banana or whatever. So because it was a free car park, but I felt like I had to make my contribution. <laughs> but uh, I got out of the car and the whole roof was ice. I hadn't realized it when I was driving up there. It was r- totally frozen and I slipped and fell back flattened my back on the roof and was lying there looking up in the clouds. And I felt like this is it. The multi story (laughs) is throwing me out.
0: This is it. I have to
3: finish the book. I have to get out of here. I have to move on to whatever the next thing is going to be. So I had a real sense that it was the right place to write the book and that when the book was done, the place pushed me away, you know. And and uh, and yeah, I, I wouldn't change it, you know, I'm I'm before that, I used to kind of glamorize the idea of people having, you know, a beautiful study covered mm. in like lovely shelves of books. Yeah, that's and... the image
2: we all have, I think. There, <laughs> of, you know, of <laughs> of writers writing.
3: Yeah, it wasn't the case for me. I was up there in the mud store with my flask of coffee and blankets, and often a hot water bottle up there, and and just trying to trying and trying and trying.
1: This is in Balancolic, I think. Did we have we mentioned that yet? Maybe people yeah. can guess the geography by your description, your your beautiful description of places around there. You you documented some of this on social media Darren, And I think people were, were willing you on because obviously you're going to have some wobbles along the way there was one post the past couple of weeks have been excruciating and utterly utterly exhausting featuring the horror show realization that my book is not what I thought it was I'd imagine there's probably a few writers listening to this and almost every one of them will have had had that realization at one stage so in some ways your experience in in that car the ups and the downs just sound like a quite quite intense microcosm of uh, a writer's career and and maybe just life
3: yeah I think just life I think you hit the nail on the head I think that we get very used to kind of like passing each other and, and greeting each other kind of like in a nice but in an ordinary kind of superficial polite way as we're going through our lives. But everyone is going through, you know, scenarios where they're grappling in an intense way with different issues in their lives all the time. And I mean, anyone seeing me dropping my daughter off at school probably didn't realize okay off she goes to the roof of the Story to grapple with a ghost for the next three hours (laughs) and you know trying to write a book um but everyone has their own thing going on I suppose and there's always highs and lows with any kind of striving towards a goal and I don't think we would value the achievement like we do if it wasn't for the difficult moments as well as the glory moments
1: Okay, well, speaking of valuing achievements, I think it's about time we started talking about the sporting accolades of the poet, Darren Lee That's coming right up after these on Second Captain Saturday. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're listening to Second Captain Saturday on RT Radio One. Hope everyone's doing well this afternoon. Oh, my Devin and Kieran Murphy here, and we're loving our time in the company of the poet and author Grief at today. Now, Darren, it is time to talk about your sporting pedigree. So, are you ready to do this?
3: Oh my gosh! <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Go on. Let's it's go first. It. It's not
1: too late to pull out. Okay, now you have already laid <laughs> down a marker with your Supermax story? So, were you uh, were you a sporty kind of a kid? No, not
3: at no. all. I was a real bookworm and, um. That was what brought me great joy as a child, because it transported me. I was constantly in and out of the library in Ennis. And like that would have been the sum total of my physical or my sport. (laughs) I don't know. You can even call it that (laughs) ability was uh, logging books in and out of the library. That was it. And uh, the MS Readathon, that was when I would have been like, you know, striving and, and in training and going for gold. How many books can <laughs> I read this year? can I beat my personal best of last year? And just um, that, like, I mean, that was the sum total of it. And I'm embarrassed of that, to be honest, like and I, you know, I'm a bit ashamed, particularly because everything changed for me. As I think it changed for a lot of people at the start of lockdown and, and I think everyone experienced it in a different way. I love hearing people's stories of lockdown, by the way, but for me, everything changed for me in terms of how I perceived myself um, physically in terms of sport. Because I would have had, like, you would laugh if you could see just the extent of just how sedentary my lifestyle was. Like, it, genuinely, I do have cause to be ashamed of this. Like, it was awful. Like, I would never have, like, run or anything at all. And at the start of lockdown, I started to walk every day. And then it kind of built to running every day. And I would run up and down here in the village that we live in, um, up to... A graveyard that's nearby, actually, which is a very, very young graveyard. So it's only taken up like a tiny section of this huge field that it's in, which would be more, but if you spend too much time thinking mm. about it, you know, there's all the space the rest of us are going to go into. are going to
1: be there eventually.
3: Yeah, but the, the field that's there next to it is empty. And there was very rarely anyone at the graveyard. So I took to running up the hill and just running round and round and round this field and ran like a track into the field over lockdown basically (laughs) and started to develop this sense of running for joy and just sheer like speed and having fun in myself and like would never really be measuring distance or times or anything like that. And I know it sounds so small compared to other people you talk to, but this was a revelation for me. And I suppose this is why when you were asking me about my own experience with sports and that kind of thing, I said, "Okay, I'm just going to brazen it out and talk about this. Because I think or I suspect a lot of people maybe feel like this. maybe a lot of people in school internalize the idea that there's such a thing as someone being good at sports and there's such a thing as someone being bad at sports. And I felt I was so bad at sports that I was almost like a criminal at sports, you know, like I was committing a crime if I tried to run out on a camogie pitches, and I was that level of bad at it. And that that meant that there was no point even trying. But what lockdown taught me is that sense of ordinary kind of joy that you can that you can get from stretching yourself and from trying. So. I'm still kind of working on my confidence with running, I suppose. I love it now. And my my I'm I'm striving the whole time towards building up my confidence because I really want to join um a brilliant group that's here and I think it's in other groups or there's other groups around the country as well called Sanctuary Runners, where um people run along with people who are in direct provision and that it's like um building bonds of friendship and and just enjoyment with running together people and that sense of community. And so I just want to build my own confidence that I can to a point where I can join in that. Now that for me, someone who (laughs) was a criminal at sports would be a huge (laughs) leap to have come to that sense of myself, of actually joining what is essentially kind of like an athletics club like that Uh and running with people like that would be huge for me. So I'm still building towards it. But yeah, I'm enjoying it.
1: No, I love it because I'm pretty evangelical about running, and I think you've you've you've, <laughs> um, you've nailed pretty much every benefit, mental and physical that that it has there in that answer. It's funny, Murph, because remember we were talking to Malcolm Gladwell last week, who was an elite runner and almost mm. a, a four minute miler, not a million miles off that when he was a teenager. You know, but even he was saying that that shouldn't just be what it's about. That the the goal of any sport should be if somebody. It should, it should be to engage somebody for I think he used the phrase the balance of your healthy life. You know, if a yeah. kid yeah. goes in there early, they should they should be they should be made to feel like a criminal if they're no good for a start. They should be made to feel good about the sport and treated in, in such a way that they'll be enthusiastic about it for um, for the Absolutely. rest of their life. So, yeah.
3: And, you know, it's been wonderful as well in terms of realizing that sense of of kind of just enjoyment that comes from sports. Like when I look at my kids now and and they hurl and do camogie with our part here in Ishkara. And I can just see the enjoyment and I can understand the enjoyment of it now in a way I couldn't before. Like I can see that they're out running on the pitch, like really enjoying themselves, that there's no sense of um, being good, being bad, necessarily, that like the GA instills that so well in kids at that age, you know, that they can just enjoy themselves, feel part of a team, and I think I'd like I just like in many other areas of my life, including writing, I was very slow to come to this understanding that most other people realize when they're mm-hmm. kids, you know, but I suppose I really appreciate it because it took me so long to come to it. And I'm so grateful now to have this chance to to run and just enjoy it.
2: Yeah. And you know what? I think it's worth making the point that, you know, you've broken down brilliantly why poetry is not the sort of the elitist thing that people might have in their heads or inaccessible or impenetrable or whatever. A lot of people feel the same way about sport. Mm -hmm. It can actually be intimidating for people who didn't grow up with sport or like yourself, who are finding it later on in life. There's jargon involved in every sport that's every bit as impenetrable as iambic pentameter or whatever you want to talk about. there's kind of a link there in kind of a weird in a weird kind of way
3: yeah and that is really interesting isn't it like the place how how we place ourselves in that and whether that sense of feeling excluded is coming from outside ourselves or inside ourselves I mean I don't remember necessarily anyone saying to me oh you're atrocious at sports as I was growing up I just knew it and uh, absented myself from sports because of it do you know what I mean so sometimes I think it's us if exactly as you describe if people were inviting you along that you would gradually start to realize that hopefully a lot quicker than I did you know it would be great wouldn't it
2: yeah and you know like you're obviously you're the same age as us and we saw our female schoolmates just not getting the opportunities that girls get now in sport and I think that like that is such a brilliant thing for the country well Um, it was
1: sometimes explicit it's funny you say that because my cousin WhatsApp recently into the family group. I don't know what the context was, but she she was reminiscing about how she used to be used by her PE teacher as an example of how to do something wrong. So I should oh. but yeah, it's like this is how not to do it, girls. Uh, oh, you know, gosh. so um, you, you you can you can see why in a situation like that it might be a, a little bit tricky. But sorry, Kieran, I've cut across you there.
2: But that's it. You know, like so much has actually changed since we were going to school. I think even uh, in getting girls involved in, and you know, that's a six seven eight and you know they can make their own decisions like like the lads can uh in their teenage years about what they want to play but when it's six seven eight nine ten girls are getting you know very close to the same chances at at, uh engendering a love of sport in themselves that the boys are Mm -hmm. and that is actually a beautiful thing i think
3: absolutely absolutely and actually I've been kind of lucky that I'm such a bookworm in my life because there's times where being bookish kind of pays off with understanding what it's like to be part of that element and and kind of being on the inside of that element and understanding the sense of teamwork involved in sports. And I remember there a couple of years ago, I read this brilliant essay by Emma Ryan in Winter Papers, and I know she's writing a book based on it now, all of about her experiences um, within camogie and around other camogie players and how um girls grow within themselves within their sport and develop a mastery over it um. and I think that sounds fascinating and I just I'm dying to read that book because it's something that feels so alien from my own sense of growing up and that I envy I suppose you know and really admire.
1: Okay, so this just to pin down your highlight, then it's, is it is it the readathon or are we going for the current training regime that you're on?
3: <laughs> oh, genie. I don't know if you could even call it a training regime. I suppose we'll go for that. I can't get away with the readathon. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Murph Malcolm Godwell did set a daunting score for Deeren to chase down here, but can you please rank this sporting life now of Deereny Grief?
0: You don't understand. I could have had class.
1: We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? people like
0: me I could have been a contender I could have been somebody
2: Darren I know this is the moment you've been waiting for maybe maybe for your whole life the moment when I evaluate your career sporting highlight nominate a sports person that I feel most closely resembles you and then give you a score out of 188 is the score to beat from last week when Malcolm Gladwell thought he could, have, he could have run a four minute mile if he'd stuck at it So where does that leave you? First of all, and I have to correct you right out of the gate here The MS Readathon is absolutely a sport Let's get that <laughs> straight This fixation of yours with competitive reading Well it really does remind me actually of the first Olympic medalist after the creation of the Irish Free State A name I'm sure you're obviously very familiar with Darren it's only prominent Irish sportsperson and painter Jack B Yeats, who won a silver medal at the 1924 Paris Games in the arts and culture section for his painting, The Liffey Swim. <laughs> so plenty of points for taking up running during lockdown. I think a lot of us can empathise with that. Also, your ongoing fascination with PJ Fingers O'Connell, owner of the most iconic mullet in 1990s yes. Ireland. That's got a great reaction from the judging panel, I can tell you. However, there will have to be points deducted, obviously, uh, for eating in Supermax as a teenager. It might be delicious, yes, but it's not exactly the food of champions, is it? Uh, all in all, I'd have to say it's been a monumental effort. Not quite good enough to take top spot, but good enough for 84 points. Dara Nigrifa, oh, this has been your Sporting oh, wow. Life.
3: Amazing. I can't believe it. I thought you were going to like put me way down in like 10 or 20. <laughs> Delight I'm going to be walking on air now, running on air even after that now.
1: I'm <laughs> uh, going normally this is where we wrap things up. But in this case, there, and if you wouldn't mind doing us a bit of a favor and reading out one of your poems, if that's all yeah, right. Absolutely. Thi- yeah. there's,
3: it, like, you know how I feel about uh, car parks and um, there's a whole series of machines like the that, you, pay, you know, the pay machines in the car parks, the city mm. car parks in Cork. And they all have the same um, reading on the digital display. Um, So that reading appears in this poem and the poem itself is in response to a poem by Neve Pryor, which was in the Stinging Fly literary magazine a few years ago. And the title of my poem is Under the City, a Light in a Cave. The lift falls fast to the cellar car park, its dim walls scrawled and pockmarked. No candle blinks here, but a screen bears the prayer programmed to repeat in all coin machines. Change is possible. It gleams.
1: Beautiful.
3: There you go. Change is possible in my life, anyway. Beautiful, <laughs> dearness.
1: That's, that's a round of applause, please, for being an amazing guest. We absolutely love the dearly brief round. Round of applause. Thank you. My way by psychedelic furs On second captain Saturday Well I have to say That conversation pretty much Blew my mind How about How about the rest of you Murph You gave 84 <laughs> points To someone who never Played sport until last year I know I know it Sounds like someone Fell in love with Dear new feather. <sighs> I know See this is what happens on.
2: My, I have a very spe- uh, Specific scoring system In place And then Then that goes and happens I just get charmed you know, You're soft I'm, I'm You're just, too soft I am very soft I'm the, the softest touch Going on uh, I just hope that the rest of our uh, contestants, our the rest of our contestants this season, haven't been listening because if they they know that if they're just a small bit nice to me, I'll just you know fall like a chair. So no good.
1: Darren, you seem amazing. Here's a hundred points. We mentioned last week that <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell thoroughly enjoyed being told that everything he thought about the ten thousand hour rule was wrong. Well, I'd say I thoroughly enjoyed being told that everything I thought about poetry was wrong this week. And as a means of making it up to all the poets out there, I'm feeling a little bad about my my attitude today. So I'd like to share this little story I came across recently. It was treated by Brian Hanrahan. Late 1960s, in a Dublin bookshop, my mother is asking for 11 poems by Seamus Heaney, which they didn't have. Man behind her in line taps her on the shoulder and says, I'm Heaney, I have a box of them out in the car, <laughs> a VW <laughs> parked on Nassau Street, and he gave her this one. There's a picture of the copy Seamus Heaney gave to this man's mother, where his name, Heaney's name is printed on the book, but crossed out in blue biro by Heaney he's then written his own name and and the oh, date wow. 30th of april 1969 <laughs> wow. amazing story love
2: that. that is that is pretty amazing uh, richard ford was telling us about how he loves dublin because he thinks he can hop into a taxi and start discussing joyce i mean i've never actually talked about joyce with a taxi driver in dublin but that story does kind of fit with what richard ford was going for there so fair well, play that's also my
1: way of making it up to the irish poets i just don't want to, i don't want irish poetry twitter coming at me after the show They could be vicious No You don't need that It's a a mess in (laughs) there You want to steer clear Uh, Saturday Sport is coming up After us Stay tuned for that We're around every day During the week On secondcaptains.com With independent Member led podcasts Including the players chair With Richie Sadler And also international series Like Where is George Gibney Thanks to Killian Down For researching this show Mark Horgan and Simon Hick For producing Thanks to Jan in studio Thank you very much Murph Thank you Owen Thanks for your company We're going to play you out With something special today After our chat with Dierney Grief About girls in sport This seems a little more poignant, I think. This time last week, we finished by willing Kelly Harrington to victory in the Olympic final. She went and did it and became a national hero in the process. So, this is our tribute to Kelly, featuring the voices of some kids in Port and Row, recorded for this week by Samantha Library, the iconic commentary of Hugh Cahill on Ortiz Sport, and the incredible voice of Lisa O'Neill and Rock the Machine. Enjoy, we'll talk to you next week. One person lifting a small nation with just, it's just me, this is the stuff that dreams are made of, like... I'm losing will.
0: So we all grew up together, so all my life I now work just the best My hands are soft as cotton yeah, I'm a boxer and I've been boxing for about two years now. Machine has eaten up my job. And when Kelly does, win this boxing's going to go very up for girls. My meaning, my call. I used to always see Kelly trying to do stuff out other people. I shovel coal down Spencer dog. And I think she's an inspiration to a lot of people. I took Cause if I train hard I can do anything You did a as a beauty for Do you think that you could be in an epic final someday? With up the machine down on the docks Yeah well I'm hoping one day I could With oh, up the machine until it's dark Kelly Harrington Beatrice ferreira Here we go two decent ones for Ferreira, again, Harrington keep it going, the shades from Zora and John, Can she continue what she's doing, goes to the body again, lovely right hook to the side of the head, beautiful shot, what a fight this is, beautiful left, right hook dance, left hook dance from Harrington, uppercut from Ferreira, Ferreira has to go for it, she's still dancing in there, she's still moving in there, ten seconds, surely Harrington has done enough in the lightweight final, there's the bell! What a performance! We're golden enough to win back time. We're golden enough to win, to win back pride. She's done it! we Olympic champion, Kelly Harrington. Died. Go for the darling of Dublin. We're all up the machine down on the dock. Michael Carruths, Katie Taylor, and now, Kenny Harkin. Olympic champion. Style.